Welcome to the Tossing Clubs Podcast. Next on the tee, your hosts, Frank Jang, Zach Moses, and Aaron Tan. Yo, what is up, everyone? Another week of Tossing Clubs. Uh, we had the pleasure, Zach and I had the pleasure, of talking to Sam Williams of the Cookie Jar Podcast. This guy, from across the pond, as they would say, is just a wealth of golf knowledge, not only about the Open, but just golf around the UK as well. Zach, how did you enjoy the conversation that we had with Sam? Oh, it was incredible. We learned so much about the culture, the golf culture in Britain, and about Hoylake, where the Open Championship is taking place this week. Uh, had some really good insight into some like wild cards to watch out for this week at the Open. And I'm just, yeah, just incredibly excited for this tournament. I'm getting married on Saturday, but somehow I'm going to have to be watching this tournament at the same time. So yeah, it's going to be a great week. Dude, you already know my phone's going to be out while people are going to be making their toes. Uh, it's <laughs> pretty obvious. <laughs> I'm just going to be like walking out of the aisle after we say I do. And then you're going to point to me and be like, Rory, Rory's at 12. Rory's at 12 under. <laughs> oh, man, it's going to be, be great. That'd be great. Uh, but, yeah, Sam was so gracious with his time, provide a lot of insight and nuggets of knowledge that, honestly, it, like we just had no – we consider ourselves pretty diehard golf fans, but he he's on another level. Um, so without further ado, let's get into that interview with Sam Williams from the Cookie Jar Podcast. Great to have you on today. How, how's it going? Yeah, good. Zach, Frank, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, good. Just uh, just talking about it before we came on, just enjoyed a, a pretty thrilling Wimbledon final. There's so much good sport going on over in the UK right now. It all comes at once over here. So we've had Wimbledon. We're in the middle of like something called the Ashes, which is massive. That's like when it's when England take on Australia in the cricket. You know, it gets played every other year, home and away. It's like that's huge. That's started to come alive. That's going to be happening next week. We've obviously got the Open Championship. There's just so much good sport so yeah no it, it's a it's a good time to be alive over here for sure yeah that's awesome man we could do an entire episode on cricket it's a game that fascinates me but i don't quite understand and that's such like an american take to like not understand cricket but no, uh it's not <laughs> it seems like no, a fun no, game no, you're spot on zach yeah so like if you try and explain the rules of cricket to a to somebody who's never really spent any time around the game it's actually impossible if you kind of been brought up on it and you follow it then it all makes complete sense but the whole concept the way you have to explain all the different rules it's mental it's actually a really ridiculously complicated game um but they play these test matches so a lot of cricket now it's like one day it's a short form because that's more popular these are five day matches which i guess is probably similar to baseball really i've never really followed baseball at all but um yeah, the, the it's like the purest game the test matches so the england england australia ashes is huge okay yeah i've always thought it thought it was pretty cool that uh, the matches can just kind of go on forever, like until it actually ends. And so it just like continues day after day, which is uh, which is pretty fun. But Sam, you uh, and a couple other folks run the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast and content platform. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So we started um, very early 2020, actually, which was just before COVID really started to sort of take hold. It wasn't really a lot of news and we sort of there was three of us or four of us I should say sorry so Cal being the fourth member um, 
who when I say he's sadly no longer with us, he's not dead. He remains a very good friend, but he doesn't he doesn't <laughs> podcast anymore. Um, you know, we probably like yourself sat around for a long time talking about golf and just thought, hell, you know, what we should just start a podcast. It seems simple enough. And you need one person in the group that wakes up the next morning, puts down five hundred quid on a on a credit card and just kind of gets you off and running, gets some equipment and you start to and then you've kind of committed, right? You've got to start podcasting. And Tom was that person. And the uh, the fourth person in our group is Bruce. Bruce is a superb golfer. Um, you know, we're all very pally from the same golf club in the Midlands, which is a place called Blackwell, just south of Birmingham. And uh, yeah, we kind of got going. And then when COVID struck, it was like the best thing that could ever happen to a golf podcast outlet because when you had nothing to do and you couldn't leave the house, it was the same for the commentators, the architects, the historians, the players they were looking for something to do as well. So you could kind of get all these different guests on, have a chat with them. And it was really cool. So we sort of started to find our own little niche through doing that. And very quickly, we'd speak to people like Mike Clayton about the history of golf course architecture. We'd speak to people like David Cannon, who's a celebrated golf photographer. And you'd start to see what resonated. And sort of gradually over time, it's almost become like a bit of an education of golf in and of itself for us. I've been around the game since I was seven. Um, but not necessarily been totally immersed in the world of golf course architecture, reading some of the ancient texts or, you know, flicking back through previous Walker Cup matches and trying to read about that sort of stuff. So the whole thing's become a bit of an education. And we've just sort of stuck at it for three years. And, you know, again, we were chatting about this before we hit the record, right? You know, this is a, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. People who get into podcasting and think you're going to do 10 episodes and it will just it will just catch fire it's just not the world you're in so we we absolutely love podcasting do we do stuff necessarily to grow the grow the list numbers probably not a huge amount actually we just kind of talk about stuff that really excites us and that typically is british golf culture and whether that's a bit of the amateur game and the professional game whether it's course architecture weird stories from golf clubs we'll do all sorts of stuff and, and we love it and it's it's kind of grown into becoming a bit of a filming platform so Tom, I mentioned, you know, he's a very talented videographer. He makes, you know, beautiful films. So we, we always talk about this concept of a story of a golf club. Every golf club has its own very distinct DNA, I would say. It has a different sort of feeling, a different smell in the air. So we try and capture that through our film content. That's morphed into events, a community, um, all sorts of stuff now. We do a ton of stuff, really. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's really good fun. It kind of becomes all-consuming, as I'm sure you guys have found as well, but it's uh, it's a lot of fun on the way. I'd imagine British golf culture is dramatically different than American golf culture. Um, have you, I guess, first off, have you played any golf out in uh, the States? And if so, like, I guess, kind of want to hear about differences between the two and um, maybe what makes, you know, British golf culture special. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one. I mean, so... I have played in have played in the states. I must admit, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit this, but the first time I actually ever hit a golf ball in in the US was at Peachtree. Um, so I managed to get out. We went on to the guys from our golf club. We we sort of do an annual trip through the Carolinas, and and for, that's been going for a number of years. And one of the one of the friends through there is very friendly with a, a chap at Peachtree, and I'd heard it's just the most magnificent place. But you've got no reference point, and you get there and you think, wow, this is. This is a condition of golf course that like, that, you know, to use Eric Anders Lang's word on our podcast, there's too much grass. Like this is in too good a condition. <laughs> this is like I shouldn't be here. It's that sort of feeling. Um, and I guess that's the that's the big difference I see in, in, in 
you know, golf culture in America versus you know, Britain is perhaps you have that sort of very high-end private country club feeling where there's a huge amount of resource and that's a lot more resource than you would pour into Royal Liverpool, our own club or a local municipal. But then I think one of the great things we have about you know, whilst America will have places which are in just unbelievable condition, there's it's more polarized. I think there's a wider jaws between the two. You know, the sort of the very, very high end golf versus the low end municipal. I think there's a massive difference there, perhaps. I mean, you can probably speak to that better than me. Um, you know, British golf culture is kind of strange. You've got the game was born in Scotland. So, you know, it's almost a birthright for a Scotsman to play golf. It's it's fundamentally accessible. So, you know, people who live in the town can get a hold of a Lynx ticket. You live in St Andrews, you can pay £400 and you can play the St Andrews courses. Like, that's that's pretty much your birthright for living in St Andrews. I would say Ireland's also kind of built in the same vein. England is a little bit more, maybe slightly private, but I would still say a very, very accessible golf culture. So you have, you know, personally, when we talk about British golf culture, the Open next week is obviously being played in England. Talking about golf courses in England, I think it offers the most incredible breadth in a small piece of land that you can see anywhere in the world. I mean, I just absolutely love golf in England. Um, but, you know, places are accessible. You know, you can you can play pretty much anywhere, bar a very few exception of sort of a, you know, high-end, almost kind of like American sort of style models, I would say, in places like Beaverbrook and Queenwood. You can still play Royal Liverpool for 300 300 pounds or so it's not impossible but there are so many great golf courses you can play for 50 to 100 pounds like it is ridiculous so um yeah we're kind of sport for choice here really yeah so tell us about the growth of the amateur game because of covid here in america it's actually impossible to get uh like a decent tea time nowadays on the weekends how's it over there yeah sure yeah i mean it's busy uh like it's super super busy so there's definitely more interest in playing golf i think that's great i think the the challenge is like, how do you keep people with it, right? So, you know, Andy Johnson made a really fair point once. He was like, when people start playing golf, we give them the shit, right? We give them the, we give them the crap. Now, if we took somebody who didn't drink coffee and said, I want this person to start drinking coffee, you wouldn't take them down to the local petrol or gas station, as you would say, and buy them the cheapest cup of coffee, would you? You'd want to take them to a really nice coffee shop, you know, get something really artisanal, something nice, you know, explain all the different tasting notes. And that's not the way golf works. When people begin playing golf, we give them the crap end of the golf game. Mm. And it's, so you've got a lot of people that have come into the sport because they've got time on their hands. Will they stick with it? I really hope they will. It's booming. Like most clubs have never really had it much better, I would say. They're, most sort of clubs are kind of full, would be their, their term, or they're, you know, they're increasing their joining fees and things as a result. You know, more accessible sort of day-to-day, you know, kind of open access places. They're heaving, particularly in the summer months. But, you know, we're we're kind of like so dependent on the weather. We don't have a reliable weather system. So you can be in July and August and you can have two or three or four weeks of rain where golf's just not really on the on the table that much. So, um, but yeah, it's busy. I mean, like, you know, you guys, I guess, can kind of see what, what's happening in the States. You guys noticed that, right? It's a lot busier. People want to play more. I think people working from home, you know, now the world of people going out at three o'clock in the afternoon to go and play nine or 18 holes. It's like, it's so doable now because most people aren't going to the office much more than a day or two a week, really. Yeah, and I'm just curious about like on the course as well because in America, right, it's very common for people to drink on the course. And you know, I browse Reddit sometimes and 
Is it true that you guys just don't do that over there? What, in terms of drinking on the course, like alcohol, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think for sure you can. Like, there's no problems. People will take, take drinks out. I would say pace of play is like a big thing. So over here, there's an expected level of pace of play. You know, our club, you want to be round in three hours and we'll stop off for a drink in the spike bar after nine because the, the way the course is routed, you walk past the spike bar and you're through the turn. So you pe people are expecting to play quickly. Now, you'll have some places that are like four or five hour rounds if they're big resort developments, but your typical member club, they want to play in three or three and a half hours. That leaves plenty wow. of time for we boozing afterwards or, you know, before. I mean, I, I quite like a few drinks in the morning and then play golf and then sort of wear it off in the afternoon. You know, I don't, you know, nobody likes playing totally charged on alcohol, I guess, but there's a great thing in British golf where there's a, there is a hundred percent a culture in the amateur game of drinking. Cause that's what used to happen. You know, the amateurs of the day were never as good as the professionals and they used to bring in, that's why the open championship was there. The members of Prestwick, you know, they got their, they got the sort of the, the best caddies along the best professional golfers to come and play and they would gamble on them and they would drink and they would watch the golf. So golf and, and alcohol are completely intertwined. I'm not an advocate for excessive drinking and, you know, I've got to be responsible and all that good stuff. But, you know, hell, I think golf's a great game with alcohol as well, you know? A three-hour round sounds perfect. I feel like so many of the golf rounds nowadays in our big cities are four and a half, five-plus hours for courses that are not even in that great a shape. There's just so many people that want to be on the golf course that it takes so long. And I feel like if you're a new person and you hop out and your first round of golf is like five and a half hours, it's just like, I don't know why I would stay in the game when it, it's taken that's that long. So right? a three hour round sounds amazing. <laughs> and that's the big challenge. Like, how do you keep people with it? You know, and, and I, don't, I mean, I've, I've never been there, but I've heard, you know, you guys are West Coast. So like Presidio, I've heard that's like a superb municipal course, right? Like access, public access yep. golf. But I've heard you've got to be on the tee at like seven in the morning to have like an acceptable pace of play round. And I think that just becomes so like disenfranchising for someone who wants to get into it. It's already a pretty imposing sport. You know, 18 holes with building courses bigger. You know, I think maybe there's going to be a new trend that's going to be about bringing it, you know, dialing it all back and stuff. But we're big advocates for looking at things like we quite enjoy retro equipment. I don't always want to go off the back tees. I'm not an elite ball striker by any stretch, but I don't really feel the need to go and play off the back tees all the time because... You know, sometimes it's just nice to get around quickly. Sometimes it's nice to play off the off the tee that's closest to the green because that just keeps the flow of everything working so nicely. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't really know. I just you know that's kind of something they've got to think about at a grassroots level is how you build stuff that can cater for shorter form. But I hate to think it would become like really gimmicky and stuff. But you know, I, there's some great short courses in England. You know, where there's places like Formby Ladies. You know, Formby's a great golf club. And you've got this men, and it's probably about 40 minutes from Royal Liverpool, where, where we're playing, obviously, next week. And Formby, the men's course, sort of, like, circles around the ladies, which is this sort of Lynx and Heathland, you know, it's a mega, mega golf course. But in the middle, you've got this 5,000 yards ladies course, and it's 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 like the, the ladies golf club of Formby. Men can play it as well, and it's, you know, evolved you know, together, really, but... It's like this little 5,000-yard Heathland golf course. And you get around that in two hours, 15. You know, it's just a, there's just nothing better. Like, a, sh a quick game is a happy game. Are right? most people walking or riding? Like, we have a big riding culture, golf cart culture in, in the States. But uh, is there more walking over there? Yeah, I think, I'd say there's a lot more walking. 
generally does that mean there aren't places where there's lots of bugging no you look at resort courses and you it's like when was the course built you know post-world war you look at some of the sort of trent jones stuff where you know all that sort of era where we were building bigger golf developments and they were building them for cart paths and we could you know the advent of the golf cart meant you could go and take yourself to a different part of the property in five minutes and you could have another great par four that goes off an elevated tee shot whereas the the golden age courses were built simply by having to put the tee as close to the green as you feasibly could and it not being about where you're going to get the best tee shot from it's about having the most convenient tee shot so i think that's led to a lot of the courses in britain typically becoming walking you know i yeah it's it's a pretty small buggy culture unless you go to big big resort courses so um and i think that's a great thing like i i, I don't really enjoy bugging it's not really a thing like uh, i mean some courses you've got to do it and i appreciate that and you know if you go and play golf in spain a sort of a massive resort place you'd never dream of walking because it would be ludicrous in that heat but um yeah like I mean, walking's just a much better experience. You know, I love carrying, but you don't have to carry. Just just the feeling of walking, I think that just, the whole flow of the round. I mean, you, I, I'm, guys are good golfers, right, I'm guessing. You guys, you know, know what you, you know, when you're, when you're in the flow of a round, walking up to a shot, you're starting to process and think about what you're going to do with the golf shot. When you're just driving aimlessly up the fairway with a buggy and then turning left and you're grabbing two or three sticks off the back, not for me, not for me. Yeah, I think walking is the perfect way to approach uh, a golf ball on a golf course. I feel like you can actually, it's like kind of how it was meant to be played to walk it. Uh, and you can see other parts of the course that you're not going to see with the golf cart. But my geography in uh, the UK is, is poor. Uh, but could you give us a little understanding of like where you're based and, and where your uh, the rest of the cookie jar podcast people are live and kind of like tell us a little bit about the golf courses in your area maybe if i were to plan a trip out there what are your like one or two favorite golf courses okay yeah cool so so we're we're in a part of england which is called the midlands so that's it's basically birmingham so if you follow premiership football maston villa i guess would be an yep. example um we are about as far from the coast as you can be and i think we can be in the coast in about an hour and 45 so in england it's an island it, it's all pretty pretty convenient pretty easy to get to about an hour and a half, maybe two hours north of London, and we're about two hours south of Liverpool, which is obviously where the Open's being played. Um, you know, in terms of golf in England, you've got, I'd say you've probably got sort of three big destinations, right? So you've got the Kent coast, which is the sort of very southeast coast of England, and that's where you've got Royal St. George's, but also that, you neighbouring those, those that golf course, you've got Royal Sinkports and Princes. Both of those have held an Open Championships in their history. So these these three courses literally sit in a line. And about another further hour along the coast, you've got a place called Rye, which is a sort of very historic club, very kind of important to the fabric of, of English golf, really. First course that Harry Colt was involved in designing, who's a sort of very important British golf course architect. Um, so that kind of link stretch on the southeast coast, that would be like one sort of big destination, I guess you could say. And then around London, you know, London's just got so much great golf because you, in the southwest, you've kind of got the Heathlands, which is really kind of like deposits of really sort of sandy, you know, rich soil, plays very dry, firm and fast throughout the whole year. So it's not quite Lynx turf. Not, I mean, have you, either of you guys played Lynx before? I'm yes. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll okay, say it's cool. uh, American links. I'm sure it's not the same as uh, over there. But we played. Uh, I mean, Gamble Sands. Uh, we would consider a links course, right? Yeah. I mean, I I live in 
uh, the state of Washington and Chambers Bay, which hosted the U.S. Open uh, back in, I think, 2015, is kind of considered a Lynx course. I've actually been out to St. Andrews once um, about 10 years ago and played St. Andrews. So played a little bit of Lynx golf, and I'm a a big fan of it. Yes, yeah, so you know then the, the you know kind of the defining feature being the ground and all that, and you've got the heathlands which are not quite the the links, but they're still very firm. You've got the beautiful heather, that's a great sort of penalty. So you've got so many good courses in London. We could do a five-hour podcast just talking about golf in and around Surrey. There's obviously places like Sunningdale and Walton Heath where the where the women's will be in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but you've got literally hundreds Woking, Warplesdon. You've got places like the Addington, which is outstanding. You've got Sunningdale Heath, which used to be the Sunningdale Ladies Club, which is like a short course. Again, not dissimilar to a Formby Ladies in length. I mean, you've got places like West Byfleet, Tandridge, like the list goes on. It's crazy. So, um, and then and then further up northwest, you've then got that whole stretch of, of courses you'll be familiar with again, which would be your Royal Lytham, St. Anne's. You've got Royal Birkdale, Royal Liverpool, Formby, Hillside, Southport and Ainsdale, West Lanks. You know, there are a glut of insanely good courses but those are just like the destinations you know all three of us from cookie jar are based in the midlands but we all travel around because it's all so easy to get to um blackwell in the midlands is is absolutely superb in our local area that 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 that's a really good golf course little aston is the other side of birmingham another that's like a harry varden sort of victorian layout that was polished up by colt colt has touched most golf courses in england like you know harry colt's influence on the game is absolutely second to none um, but there's so much and you've got you go up to the northwest and then all of a sudden you drift out of Harry Colt territory and you go into Alistair McKenzie territory because McKenzie's first golf course was at all Woodley and that was where he was trusted by the memberships to let to lay out the golf course Harry Colt was then paid to come up and check his work and sign it off and say yeah this you're not going to waste your money with this guy and McKenzie went on to do some pretty special stuff so you can go and play in the northwest and you can just you know, play a ton of great Mackenzie courses. Seton Carew is a Lynx course. You know, all the greens have been done by Mackenzie. 22 holes, it's outstanding. You've got Moortown. You've got places like Halifax. And, I mean, there's just so many good golf courses in England. It is a joke. So, um, and there's things for all different ends of the budget. So, what I would say is you don't need to spend £300 around ticking off open rotor courses because... The likes of Royal Birkdale or the likes of Royal Liverpool or Royal St George's, they are they're one style of golf course. They are big championship links golf courses. They are prestigious. There is a real sense of occasion when you when you go there. They are absolutely second to none. But then an, an experience and going playing a place like or Woodley or going to Little Aston or to Blackwell is 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 no no worse and it's significantly cheaper. Um, and it's a little bit off the beaten trail. Like you guys can probably attest to this. Going and going and seeing some of the lesser knowns is is definitely the most rewarding part. Yeah, definitely. Think. You know, I watch Rick Shields sometimes, and some of the courses over there look distinctly different from what I'm used to playing. Uh, but yeah, speaking of great courses, I mean, let's talk about Royal Liverpool, uh, the course that is hosting the Open. What makes this place so special? Royal Liverpool's a funny one in England because. It is the, it is probably the most important golf club in England, I would say. So, when the you know the game was typically was founded up in Scotland, you know the first the first two couple of golf clubs in England were one of them was Royal North Devon, Royal North Devon, which was known as Westwood Ho, 
um that's still there you can still go and play it's great it's really good fun um and you've got Royal Liverpool. And these were the sort of, first, sort of early pioneers of golf in England, really, in, in any sort of true sense. Um, they've had a hand as a club in pretty much most things in, in British golf that are worth anything. So they had like the first ever amateur championship of some form that gave birth to the amateur. You know, when they had that amateur championship, they then they knew that they didn't want to just hold on to it as a club tournament for amateurs to come and compete in. They went to St. Andrews, which would you know, become the, R, you know, the RNA, and say, look, we want you to govern this tournament, and we think this has the potential to be something far, far bigger. Um, they laid on the first match between Great Britain and the USA, and that became the Walker Cup in time. You know, that was, I think, 1921, that would have been. You know, it's a really important club. They've had so many things that have happened the first person to ever win the first englishman and first amateur to ever win the open championship was a hoylake member um guy called john ball jr when he won that set fire to golf in england so he won that in 1890 in the next three four five years every golf club pretty much around that time seems to have developed in that time blackwells 1893 so many golf courses in the early 1890s and all of that was because of this guy john paul jr who was an english amateur who went up and, and won the open championship against the great scots there's so many of these different stories and you can kind of research and you know i'd encourage people to go and find out more but the the high level summary is look hoy lake's a super significant club in the fabric of english golf um now, that doesn't speak to the course so much. That's the heritage of the club. Um, the course is a... Some people will go and play somewhere like Royal Birkdale and they'll be really impressed with the dunes. Like, we'll all remember the Spieth stuff when he was wide right on, I want to say it was 14, um, 13 rather, on, on in, you know, in the Open Championship. And he had to you know, play that huge six iron over the dunes. A lot of the holes at Royal Birkdale have these huge towering dunes. And Royal Liverpool just isn't like that. It's a really flat piece of ground. You know, when you've got the all the sort of grandstands and all the spectator stuff there, you won't really get a sense for it. But anyone that's visited Royal Liverpool outside of an open year will probably attest to getting there for the first time and looking out across a pretty vacant landscape. It's all quite flat. There's no massive sight lines. It's not a stunning piece of coastline by any stretch. But the quality of the golf course is absolutely outstanding. It is a really very test of golf it's really nuanced it is a brilliant repeat golf course the more you play it the more you fall in love with raw liverpool and you see the real charm in it it's not one where you stand on the first tee and go oh my god i just cannot believe what <laughs> i'm seeing here this is incredible do you know what i mean i think there's a real yeah. big difference between the sort of the growers and the showers you know like the, the ones that sort of really grow <laughs> on you and hoy lake's definitely in that camp so what would you say is the main defense the you know, prime characteristic of Royal Liverpool and how, uh, you know, it's how it defends uh, various holes, right? Because is it the wind? It sounds like it's a flat piece of land, so you're probably not going to get crazy lies. Is it thin fairways? Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about that? I mean, it's really, it's, it's a proper examination of ball striking. So if Hoylake doesn't have massively undulating greens, I think you're going to see, this is a armchair sort of pundits review of things for next week, but my guess is you're going to see pe quite a few people holding 100 feet of putts or more. I think you can hold things at Hoylake. The greens are not crazy undulating. There's not massive slopes within the greens. There are contours around them that make life difficult, but when you're on the putting surface, things are typically fairly, fairly flat. It's nothing like St. Andrews. The big defense, tee to green, I mean, you've got... 
the bunkers, when Woods won there in 06, he just stayed clear of those bunkers. That was the only objective, tee to green, for him, was to just keep himself in play. So those bunkers are going to be seriously difficult. Now, good friend of ours, James Bledge, is the Lynx manager at Raw Liverpool. He's in charge of the course. Um, he's talking a lot about things like a member's rake and, a, and an open championship rake. And what he means by that is the bowl, the bowls within the bunkers that they have for the members will be levelled out for the open championship. So you're going to see... You know, the bunker sand will be very level, which means if you go underneath one of those revetted bunkers, you could be almost completely within the corner of the revetted bunker. So staying out of the sand, that's like very key. Uh, I would also say out of bounds is a pretty defining characteristic of the course. There's a real quirky bit. So you, I think people will know this and the broadcasters will overdose on it anyway, but the 17th and the 18th hole for the members will serve as the first and second holes of the Open Championship for the players so that means they play the third hole sorry they play the first hole for the members as the third hole in the open right and that third hole has this huge out of bounds that runs down the right hand side and that goes back to when the golf course was originally occupying the same land as a race course and you can still see that race course which would run around the first you know a little bit around this is where I'm going to confuse the open order, but you've got the 14th, which we're playing as the 16th, um, and then back down 16th, which is playing as the 18th next week. And that was like the, the race course that the horses used to go around. So that out of bounds is a very defining feature and comes up quite regularly through the golf course. You then have stretches around the sort of turn as well, where there's out of bounds around the left. Um, yeah, that those are kind of the things. It's a, it's a, real, it's a real tough test tee to green ultimately the wind blows it's flat bernard darwin great golf writer wrote blown upon by mighty winds breeder of mighty champions and if you look at the winners that have that have gone on and won at royal liverpool you know you're looking at the absolute greats of the game rory mcelroy tiger woods De Vincenzo, when he won there in the day was in, in the absolute pomp of his game you got people like peter thompson hugely hugely successful open championship player from australia You've got you know Bobby Jones won there in 1930. That was the Grand Slam year. That was when he won all four majors in the year. You know, there's I think Hagen won there. I, I mean, I'm someone someone on our film said you even missed Hagen out in the list of people. You know, Harold Hilton. There are so many great winners at Royal Liverpool, and that's no coincidence. You know, it just takes the the best player seems to rise to the top. So, who knows? But that would be uh, that would be kind of a bit of a rundown on the golf course. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. It definitely seems like it identifies uh, who the best player is that particular week. I mean, you mentioned Tiger Woods winning in 06 and Rory in 2014. And I feel like both of them obviously have great games all the way around. Um, you mentioned it's kind of a ball strikers course. Like, do you think there's a certain type of player other than being like incredibly good across all your parts of your game, but that's going to kind of rise to the top? this week like do you see it like a Colin Morikawa who's just like incredible with his irons or more of like a Cam Smith who makes a lot of putts like if there is one characteristic about a player's game that you think is gonna you know be highlighted this week would you point to anyone I'd say it'd be the I'd say it'd be the more reserved golfer that's that's just got really good strategy now they've all got great strategy you know they the truth is they're not all great ball strikers they're all brilliantly good at understanding shot values and when to take things on aren't they um do I think putting is of like importance on the basis that there's not huge undulations within the greens? No, I'm not so sure. I think I think you know any of these guys can light fire with the flat stick for a week. Um, 
I think it's a really well-balanced golf course. They've kind of built the Open Championship, though, in such a way where I don't... It's the longest back nine in Open Championship history. Does that mean we're going to need to see a really big, really big hitter um, take it on? I'm not actually certain it will, no, because I think the length that's gone onto that back nine comes in the form of two par fives, which will be the 18th and what we'll be playing as the uh, 15th. And those are both going at something around 600 plus yards. And I think there's a par five, which was the eighth, which we're playing as the 10th, which is also about 500 yards. So you've got a lot of yardage there. But if the wind means it's a three-shotter, it's a three-shotter. And if they're downwind and it's a two-shotter, it's a two-shotter for pretty much all the fields. So do I think distance is essential? No. I I, th- I fundamentally think it's the person who, who thinks well. Now, there's a few people there that, that kind of jump off the page then. You've got people like... He's way down the rankings. Do I think Lucas Herbert's going to win this? I'm not so sure he will. But his <laughs> caddy, Pew. Now, he's a Heswell guy, which is, ju- of course, just around the, go- the corner from Hoylake. He knows the links at, he- at, uh, at Hoylake about as good as anyone there next week. He's going to have a really good chance, right? Like, I think so much of this is understanding this, the really subtle contours. It's a really subtle golf course. So understanding the subtle contours and the relative severity of the hazards and where you need to be. There's really, really important golf holes. Like, I'm going to stop saying this now, but I, I have got to get this right. So, 15, <laughs> 14, around the corner where Tiger holed out back in 06. You know, being able to judge that shot and knowing where to play that shot and where to leave your tee shot around a huge dune that you've got to kind of play over for your second and you've kind of got to play chicken with these fairway bunkers. They're going to struggle to, if that's the first time you've looked at it this week at Royal Liverpool, with the wind changing a little bit, that's going to be quite hard for a newbie to fully fathom. And it's nine years since we've had an Open Championship there. So, you know, does that mean that I might think somebody's got a bit of course knowledge would win? I think I think it's certainly going to give them a shot or two as advantage over the week. Matthew Jordan played absolutely brilliantly in qualifying. Matthew Jordan is a professional golfer, but he played his club golf at Royal Liverpool. When he turned pro, he was off plus seven at Royal Liverpool. He was a seriously good player. And at West Langs to qualify and get into the field at his home club, which is a huge honour for him, he went absolutely lights out. Like he played the best golf in qualifying that day. Um, we had a couple of the guys from Cookie Jar that were up there following it. It was an absolute clinic. Matthew Jordan would be one to watch next week for sure. Like he knows that course better than anybody. These are great uh, dark horse picks. I don't know if gambling culture is big over in the uk but like i definitely know we have a lot of listeners that like to make some bets on the major championships and we're always looking for some additional insight on some of those names that are further down i don't want any hate mail if people lose their <laughs> savings on this but I, but I, I i did look at it i obviously had a little little flick through and i thought the two the two names there that would be extremely extremely high odds so 300 to one which i don't know what it equates to in the way you do your odd system but you know they are huge huge punts Matthew Jordan to make the cut and 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 put in a pretty good showing. I don't think is beyond the realms of possibilities. Hell, the guy could go pretty well. Um, Lucas Herbert would be there. I like Richie Ramsey as a golfer. I think he's a really steady player. He's a wise player. He's not played an open for a few years, and he won a he won an event at Hillside not too far away from Hoylake a year or two ago. And he's now playing in the field on the back of that exemption. I just have a soft spot for Richie, and I'd love to see him go well. But um, you know, there's some good players. Bob Mack, you know, bit of a return to form this week at, at the Genesis. You know, he was really unlucky not to go and win that today. You know, Bob Mack has played in 
you know, and he seems to come to the forefront there in really difficult conditions at Renaissance. You know, he grew up playing his golf at Oban in the west coast of Scotland. He's he's not afraid of, you know, strong winds, rain, all those sorts of things that can go. Do we know enough about the forecast yet to say whether or not you need to be on the certain side of the draw? That's proved pretty pivotal in previous years. I don't know. Um, but, you know, if I had £100,000 and you told me, Zach, you've got to go and put this out on the on the betting markets tomorrow, I'd probably put 95000 of it down on Rory McIlroy. I feel like it's written in the stars. He has... He's. I mean, look, he seems to have a great record, not just in national opens, but, like, winning at venues where he has won before. Like, he just seems really good in that in, in that environment. And it just feels like it's due, you know? It feels like it's time. And I'm not the guy that always loses his mind because I think Rory's going to win. But I think Rory's going to win. I'm, I, I'm so scared because I feel like everyone's pick this week is Rory. And he's my pick as well. I want him to win so badly. He came so close last year at St. Andrews. He's come so close in so many of the majors over the last few years. And it would just be like the perfect moment for him to win, like the perfect story narrative for him to come back and get a major here. And man, I just feel like when everyone in the world is picking Rory, like so much on his shoulders, like, can he pull it off? And like, I mean, hopefully, maybe. (laughs) It was miraculous stuff, wasn't it, today? I mean, it was a hell of a, he, I I had to go out at a, yeah, I mean, we had to go out for lunch. I had to miss the last six holes and I, I looked at it over lunch quickly, the scores, and I was like, hell, Rory's just come birdie birdie to finish and win that and take that off Bob Mack. Um, you know, by the grace of God, you know, got a bit squirrely out there for him in the first sort of 12 holes to net and he fought back brilliantly to, to kind of put himself in the position. I just feel like that sometimes there's like a narrative there somehow that's just ready to be written. But then we were at the Open Championship last year and it was the narrative was there with Liv and that showdown with Cam Smith. And it was like, it wasn't quite good versus evil, but you kind of get where I'm where, get where I'm going. And it was the 150th. Roy's just somehow got the expectations of the world on his shoulders all the time. So I, I don't know. I mean, he, you know, Renaissance by contrast is it's a very, very different, different golf course. Renaissance where they played this weekend. Scheffler again, surprised, did not have his best stuff with the flat stick, did he? Those greens are bonkers at Renaissance. Absolutely bonkers. <laughs> let me tell you, they are, they are nuts. So, you know, does that, does that diminish, you know, the, the impact of, Maybe a slightly questionable putter for Scheffler, perhaps. Hell, the guy hits the ball about as good as anybody on the planet, doesn't he? So, you know, you've got to think he's in with a shout. But, you know, he's probably, he's not necessarily a seasoned Raw Liverpool veteran. I, I, don't, I don't really know. It's um, it's crystal ball stuff. Who else have you guys sort of looked at in the field and thought, oh, I'm quite interested? Oh, before we get at that, I just want to chime in. I saw the forecast. There's a little bit of rain, so the course is going to play a little bit longer. I feel Rory's prime to take advantage of that, right? And if what you say, the greens aren't too undulating, then you know his putting doesn't have to be as good as Cam Smith's. To you know, like like Cam Smith was incredible at St Andrews with some of the lines that he took, right? And I don't think he necessarily needs to, you know, copy that, but. I man, this question was in the back of my mind this whole time. How do you feel about Tommy Fleetwood? Like he's got to be, like, yeah, he's got to be like yeah. the most popular guy in England, right? Yeah, I mean everyone loves Tommy, right? You know, 
Tyrrell Hatton, not so much. And then the guy's a national disgrace half the time. But um, <laughs> Tommy Fleetwood, yeah, I mean, he's, what's not to like about Tommy? There, again, little bit of little bit of knowledge. You know, Ian Finnis, his caddy, is a great ball striker as well. Ian Finnis, apparently, the other week was at Royal Liverpool. He's a, he's a great player in his own right. Stands on the first tier at Royal Liverpool, the third in the open routing, and just pulls driver and just takes it over the corner. I have no idea whether the players are going to do that next week. I've never seen anybody do it. It is literally a four iron up to the corner of the outer bands. You can't really carry the outer bands. He's miles. He's a huge hitter. But anyway, Ian Finnis played most of his golf at I think West Lanks and around the area. Tommy is from up on the northwest coast as well. They know that golf course very, very well. Um, it's not his first rodeo there at all either. So I think, um, you know, and he's peaking, isn't he? I, oh, yeah. You know, I he's want playing him to really come good golf. Yeah. And he's a, you know, he'll be another one that's sort of a fan's favorite. I think it's a strange one, though, isn't it? People seem to have the soft spot for Rory there. They're in the final group together, aren't they? I think today. And it was like, you know, you kind of got the sense people would rather see Rory come with it than, than Tommy Fleetwood. But Tommy would be a really popular winner. And I think, um, yeah, I think he's. I mean, he's got all, he's got all the all the attributes there. So, um, and he's really he's a really good shot maker, isn't he? He's, you know, he's got he's got a huge amount of sort of feel and touch and everything like that, which really comes to the forefront when you're looking at major golf. You know, I'd be I'd be really interested to see when we get up there tomorrow what the course looks like. When we were up there a few weeks ago, it was burnt off. It was burnt to a crisp. The whole thing had. You know, we'd had a, a whole month of June where there was barely any rain. It was the driest on record. It was hot. Um, and they put a bit of wetting agents down and we've had a bit of rain. And I think that might mean that, you know, all of a sudden the, the rough is going to come up and it's going to become quite thick and juicy. That's a massive change, that is. That's a really big change in, that, in how that course will play because we looked at St Andrews last year and there was almost no penalty really for being off the fairway. And the fairways were running so fast. Um, I think keeping the ball in play off the tee, if the rough is up a little bit, is going to be going to be much more important than it would have been last year yeah i feel like you know in addition to tommy like some of the names that are fan favorites that we all want to see just pull through right i mean ricky as well he hasn't won a major uh and in a similar vein tommy he hasn't won in the u.s he hasn't won you know a major he's come really close uh, i mean i think there's a lot of great potential storylines for the open and you know, I just like those three, Rory, Ricky, and then uh, Tommy. I think the worst that could happen is to have someone like Sky Scheffler win. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like if he goes and does it, like fair play. Like if he goes and does it, like you got to take your hat off to the guy. Um, I, I think so much of it comes down to the conditions. Like you guys will know playing these types of golf courses, the importance of the wind and the elements. And if the wind doesn't blow at Hoylake, they'll probably take it apart. Like they will, they will just they will, they are very good at dismantling a golf course and plotting their way around around it and pulling it to pieces. And if the wind blows, I think it'll be a different game. That seventeenth hole is going to be absolutely fascinating when it gets to uh, when it gets to the last couple of days. Particularly if the wind is up, I cannot stress how difficult that golf hole is. It is the it is the perfect hole for an open championship for the world's best at the 17th. I mean, it is, it is perfect. It is bloody difficult. If you're a member of playing off 16 handicap and you need to make four to, to get back into the clubhouse <laughs> for a net 68, it's bloody hard. Like you can, you can take eight or nine there. If you, you know, there are, 
there are some real limitations there if you're a if you're a high handicap player or you haven't got loads of club head speed because the the traps are so deep and the green is so small and there is absolutely no miss. Um, but for these guys, it's one shot from 130 yards and I think they'll push it up a lot shorter. So that's going to be a really, really exciting part of the course to see. Um, yeah, who knows? Who knows? What do you feel the winning score is going to be? Uh, I'm just taking a look at the last couple of times, my 17 by Rory, my 18 by Tiger. Yeah, it seems like yeah. it's, it's ghetto. I, mean, I, I don't know how you guys feel about this. I, I personally don't really care about the courses defending par. I think the what you want to see in these things is a great, great leaderboard and a great championship. And invariably, when we've had majors where you know par has won over four days, I'm not sure they've always been the best sort of evergreen winner, like the person that... You know, I th- I'm not. I don't want to detract from Paul Laurie at Carnoustie and Van der Velde, but they weren't emphatic major winners, and they weren't. <laughs> and there was a great tournament. They played brilliantly, but they see when they when they bring the course to that condition, it makes it a much more one-dimensional test, isn't it? It it, it you, know, you look at that year in Carnoustie, and you just had to hit it straight. It was just like the only thing. Otherwise, you were lo- you know you're out of golf holes. Um, so do I care if it's 20 under par at Oil Lake? No. If the wind is down, it'll probably be more than 20, I suspect. If the wind blows, I think it'll be. I think they can they can do stuff with the pin locations where they start to bury them around little corners and they can really tuck them away and, and, and protect par if they want to. Does that mean that you're not that we're going to get a more exciting product at the end of it? I'm not sure it will actually. So I think these guys are master tacticians and they'll still play for the safe spots and they will take on risks in a certain way um yeah i mean like you, you'd seen the scores there that that year in 06 with woods it was playing so short and it was like a weetabix like the thing was just burnt um you know rory's win a little bit juicier you know the softer i think you're going to have a balance between those two this week it's going to have the firm characteristics where the ball will get away from them and they need to keep it on the fairway so they can get some spin on the golf ball and I think they'll be punished if they're in the rough, but not 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 to the point they'll just be hacking out of it. I think it'll be the loss of control around the golf ball, and I think that'll make it quite exciting. And it should be quite a balanced test on that basis. But um, yeah, I'll gun to my head. I'd probably say something like seventeen under, or probably probably be that. I, I I don't see massive heavy winds forecast, and if there's a bit of rain, I don't think that makes a big deal of difference. The you know they will score better when the rain comes down. I really hope we get wind. I really hope we get some strong wins because it'll just make it a brilliant spectacle. And Sam, I want to get your take on the open versus, you know, what you saw at LACC because for us in America, a lot, it was pretty divisive on the review of uh, the U S open, our national championship. I'm talking about the fan Uh, experience and stuff like that. Yeah. And just the course overall, how basically if you hit in the fairway, it's all going to roll into that little, you know, ball anyway so it's like what's the point so as yeah. someone on the other side what do you think of our national open this year i didn't I, I liked it actually for what it was i thought it was a really good setup i mean it was really tough like really really tough golf course clearly um but it wasn't tough in a like the presentation of Wingfoot when bryson won there that was a very different look of just you know what that one dimensional test of either bludgeon it 360 up to the green and hack out with rough or or you know you just got to keep tapping irons up there and it, it was a very different different thing I, I thought the course looked really good actually if i'm honest like i quite liked it um 
I thought it made it quite, it was an exciting watch. It produced some, produced the right people there. Um, I thought it was a real shame. You know, if you lived on the West Coast, you know, re- and I don't know how much truth there is in this. I've never been to LACC, you know, but I feel like the National Open, it's really important that people can go and spectate. And I sensed that there was, what I heard was there wasn't much of an atmosphere on the ground and that was a factor. And I think it'd be a real shame if you lived half an hour away from that club and your 12-year-old boy was really into his golf and he really wanted to go and watch a National Open being played in his, in his you know, his hometown. And he couldn't get through the gates because it was full of corporates and it was full of um, people from Charles Schwab and AT&T <laughs> and members <laughs> with a dozen friends who've flown into town for a weekend. I think that's a real shame. Now that's, that's up to the club and what they that what that's what they they agree. But I think the great thing about the Open Championship is you have all these all the kids that come along and you have and it's really family friendly and the RNA have worked very hard to make that a very commercial product that brings a lot of people in to watch the golf there. But you know it's never been to the detriment of the fans' experience and the ability to get there. It's hard. You've got to ballot for tickets. It's not a sure thing. But I don't. I never go there feeling oh my god we've just given away pretty much all the tickets to corporate sponsors here and it's just full of people from rolex that's not how it feels you know um i think yeah that was a bit of a shame i I got the sense that wasn't a great look for them maybe i don't know now to put you on oh sorry great now put you on the spot but how much is a one-day ticket i have absolutely no idea you've you have okay for the the u.s open it was more than 300 yeah so my guess it would be like 80 to 100 or something like that um but like that's just a guess, right? Like, uh, I mean, I mean, I'm gonna Google this thing now. How much? Yeah, yeah but I think it just emphasizes yeah. the fact the U.S. Open was so ridiculously gate gated, gate kept, right? Um, it just did not feel like a grow the game atmosphere at the at all. Yeah, it very much goes against like the ethos of an open, right? An open in the title of the tournament being not only that every anyone can qualify, but anyone should be able to attend and watch. And yeah, like you said, Sam, when you kind of just keep a lot of the tickets to the corporate sponsors, it's it's definitely a different vibe on course and on TV. And you want people cheering, you want people ex- excited to be there. And it was yeah, not the best look. Well, the clue's in the name, isn't it? You know, the clue's in the name. It's an open. The, the idea of national opens is that you know people can get in like you know if i sort my short game out i could go i could have a go at qualifying and <laughs> and then <laughs> i'm never going to get in the field but i could give it a go and if 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 the stars aligned and all of a sudden i had a massive uptick in my own golfing <laughs> ability i could actually be there and and that's the great thing about having you know these open championships and the same should should be the case for people who want to go and spectate and should go and see it do I think it's going to be a great place to go and be a spectator? I'm not so sure. It's not the there's not millions of vantage points. I mean, if you if anybody's lucky enough to be there th- this week, like going and spending time on 17 will be brilliant. Not just because you'll get to see that shot, but you'll also have a look down the the 14th, um, which is just a, a you know a brilliant green site perched up where Woods Hold in 06. You know that that's a great spot. There's some nice vantage points around the turn, around the early parts of the back nine. But um, yeah, that was a shame, wasn't it? Like I, I think um, I think the RNA do a really good job for what it's worth with this stuff. Um, you know, the Open's a huge, huge event now, um, and you know it's kind of. I think that's going to put some limitations on where it goes in due course as well. I mean, like it's really important for them to have, you know, fifty to hundred thousand people in a day or whatever they they can handle. You know. 
Uh, well, Sam, I, I appreciate you uh, taking on all these questions. I know we're kind of just peppering them at you, and we like all this insight is, is super fascinating for us. Um, I had kind of just like one more that's a bit separate from the open, and then maybe we could like, finish this episode with like our final picks, even though we kind of gave previews a little bit of where we're going to go with those. But what is like the general British like take on Live and the PGA Tour? Like, is are people a fan of Live Golf? over there like i know it's very contentious over here in the states is it is it similar mm. i wouldn't say there's a general opinion so i think i definitely said there's not a general opinion um my read would be that there are more anti-live than pro-live if that's a thing like i don't know but then that might be just a product to the guys i speak to who might be a bit more traditional you know i don't i don't know um well I, do i think the do I think the product we're going to get as viewers of golf is going to be worse as a result of these announcements? No. Do I think it'll be better? Probably will, yes. Um, and I think we'll just it'll become a new accepted thing that we see. And if there's some team format that starts to run through golf in a bit more of a meaningful way, then that's what we get and we might enjoy it. Do I think the, the designated events have been a success? Like massive, massive success that for the PGA Tour. Like that's really improved the ability to tune into golf because... I, I don't know about you guys, but I can't give four days a week, 52 days a year, to command six hours in front of a broadcast to watch another PGA Tour event. It's way too much golf. Um, but what I can do is take 10 or 12 of those and, and double down on them a little bit and really give them some focus on a Saturday or Sunday. I can just about manage that, you know, with my without my wife divorcing me. So, um, you know, I feel like those have been big ticks. I, <laughs> the stuff that's coming out with the emails and the... You know, the, all of that kind of weird posturing with the Senate hearing last week. It's just a mess, isn't it? Like, I, I, I didn't... I, I get the sense that these are much more macro deals that have been carved out with the Saudis and how how they how they get involved with sport. You know, like, I don't I don't really know. I think... Uh, I mean, what are your guys' take on it? I just... I can't, I can't say live in any way, shape, or form has been in, engaging or interesting. They play at Centurion, which is down in Hertfordshire. It's not a particularly interesting golf course. It's a very big corporate golf course. Um, not many people go and watch it. They have a concert after it. it. They did well to get it off the ground last year. Have they built on that in any way, shape or form? I don't know. Maybe people went and enjoyed it, but I just don't. I know one of the guys who does a bit of stuff for us, he went and watched it the other week and he was like, yeah, it's nice. And, you know, there's some big names playing, but... It just feels like they're sort of playing an exhibition match. They're not really engaged in it. You know, there's music and it's got it's got all the raw ingredients, but there's no spirit there, you know? And I think that's a real shame. So, um, I don't know. Well, well, they shelve live. I've got no idea. But it, it at the moment, it's not something I have any interest in, really. Yeah, I think that's kind of like the, a similar take and we're aligned on that, that perspective. Like I, I think generally have never been very interested to turn it on and watch it. Like it was streaming for free on YouTube and YouTube is so easy to access and just watch a golf tournament. And there weren't that many viewers and myself, I just never really wanted to turn it on. And uh, I have a very different perspective on just like weekly golf on the PGA tour. Like, I feel like there's a lot more spirit there. I feel like there's a reason why these people are, are playing and there's something to play for. And, um, just have never felt that way about live. Also, I think the team aspect, which is kind of has been a bit of their selling point. I'm just not gravitating towards the different teams. And like, 
Like, why are these teams important? Like, I usually root for a team because it's based on a location. Like, I grew up in this area. This is why I root for this team. And I feel like these are kind of just, like, thrown together. You know, there's a, a big star at the front of them. But beyond that, I, I'm just not just not drawn to it. Well, it's massively contrived, isn't it? But, you know, I suppose it never was going to be after year one. It was never going to feel, like, authentic. It was never going to feel like the cliques had been here for 100 years, you know, despite what they try with the name. It was never going to feel like that. Um, does it mean it can't get to there? I've got, I, I don't know. You know, the, the things like the Walker Cup and stuff are just brilliant events, but there's so much history there. You've got a, you've got a hundred years of history that you're trying to, you, you can't just recreate that overnight and you can't do that with any level of money. That takes, you know, there's so many great moments and characters that go into the fabric of that as a, as a, as a, as a trophy that, that creates meaning and you can't just, you can't write checks to, to do that. Um, but you know, all of a sudden, if 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 events started dropping and that was the product, and then things did start to become a little bit more entertaining, maybe it would change it slightly, and maybe it would grow. I don't know. But it feels like there's space for a slightly shorter form than you know four day stroke play seventy two hole golf. I got to admit, there feels like there's space for something else out there. Um, but I, I think what that is it hasn't it hasn't been done in a way that's come across as authentic and magical just yet um i, d I don't really know some of the stuff that's happened in with some of these co-sanctioned events and stuff like that i think there's there's space for more of that you know i think you know but they they seem to just want to build the product in, in in a way just built around the sort of world top 50 players because that's what that's what gets the eyes on it but who knows yeah i i mean the silver lining of all of this is locations that did not have a golf event there are getting to see professional golf. And I think about specifically in Australia at Adelaide, you know, they get to see Cam Smith, like their most popular golfer playing right in front of them. And that event was actually pretty packed. And, uh, you know, there was a following there. I'm not one who loves the idea of live. I think it's because the way they present themselves, oh, we are the crushers and we have a $2 billion valuation. It's like, no, you don't. Like, stop, right? If they were a little bit more straightforward and just, you know, this is what we're doing, I think I could probably get on a with it a little bit because as we have seen, it has caused a lot of change in professional golf and for a lot of golfers that are in on the tour, they see it as, you know, better changes for them. Like you said, the designated events, I thought they were great, right? Um, you know, the, the purses are getting to a point where it, there's a lot more money to be spread around. The winners, the Rory's, the Scotties, the John Roms, like they're getting their piece of the pie a lot more than they were before. Like, I'm not trying to diss anyone, but there's a lot of people on tour that, you know, no one's showing up at events to watch them play. And yeah, Rory is carrying the PGA Tour and he rightfully should be deserved, you know, pay that that amount right like I, I don't i don't know if anyone would disagree with that so in a sense uh this is sort of playing devil's advocate but i do feel like live had a good role in all of this which is sort of crazy for me to say two years yeah yeah i think i could 100 percent get on board with that yeah like I, you know them coming in a little bit there is if nothing else it's been a catalyst for a bit more innovation whether all of it sticks, who knows? But it's like, it's a fairly staid product. I think the shame is I'd love to see events go to different places. And I feel like the, I mean, the sort of the elephant in the room here is the distance stuff because, you know, pretty much all the events are played in the US. 
the, with the top players. They sometimes come out. There might be a few in the Middle East. There's a bit of Rolex stuff through the DP World Tour. The little links sort of sojourn that they're doing now is far too short, and it all feels like it's a, over in a heartbeat. But fundamentally, the ball's going too far, and they're, 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 they're hitting it such big distances. that There's so many golf courses that have been... Um, you know, we can't go and see stuff played at, you know, some of the great golf courses in the world anymore, which I, th- I think is a real shame. You know, seeing the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne, brilliant. You know, you know, getting to see certain, you know, getting to see things like Royal Liverpool, brilliant. But seeing events at Centurion twice in a year, once for Liv, once for the Aramco team series for the women, it's like, I think I think Centurion's punching well above its weight as a golf course on, on hosting. And so much of that is because we've got to have it on a on a course that can accommodate distance and spectators. So I I I just don't know. I I feel like there's a few moving pieces. Wherever we end up with this ball rollback will be quite interesting. I think 2026 is the year when that will come into play. I might be wrong. Might be 25, but you know that would be really nice to think that we could at least put a plug in the distance issue. But right now, in terms of where those events are going to be centered. It feels like anything that drops off the schedule will just drop into the Middle East. Uh, apart from a time zone difference, I'm not sure that changes the dynamic of the events and where they're hosted that much for me personally, apart from the fact that I can watch them in the morning rather than the evening. You know. Let's circle back on the Open, make our final picks here. Sam, I know you kind of gave your pick already, so I'm going to ask a slightly different question to you and I'll give you a second to think about it. But like, if Rory wins this week, what is that victory mean for you like how are you gonna feel um but before we get there frank and i let's give our quick picks on who we think are gonna win i'm happy to go first um this is a guy i keep picking because i think he's bound to win one victor hovland playing so well i think he also plays better outside of the u.s his ball striking is incredible and sam as you kind of alluded to a course where you need to be good at all parts of your game but ball striking is incredibly important uh, I just feel like he's trending in the right direction. His best major like finish was actually at the Open Championship, one of his previous Open Championships. So I like Victor Hovland this week. I think I picked him for the, the U.S. Open as well, but I just keep going back, and hopefully he comes through for me. Jeez, uh, I think that's an excellent pick. <laughs> um, man, you took him. Uh, I'm looking through the odds sheet, and I'm a little bit surprised. The number, the best odds uh, at, at What's with what's in front of me is John Rahm actually at plus seven fifty and Rory's at plus nine hundred. Speed is also a surprise in the top five at plus eighteen hundred, the same as Victor Hovland. Um, for me, my pick is gonna be Sky Shuffle. I feel like this guy, he just cannot like he cannot fade. He's always in the top ten, top twelve. Um, and if you give yourself self a shot, like you need to make the cut first, right? He's definitely gonna make the cut. As if you give yourself a shot. If the greens aren't too hard, I'm sure he could make that putter work. So uh, sort of a, dang, he's like really bit me in the ass like the past couple of measures, but, you know, I have to go with my guy, Scotty. If he putts, he can win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're two great guys, aren't they? Yeah, that's, it's such a wide open event, really. And it's just going to come down to such small margins. I, I hope there's some excitement on 17. I really do. But I hope it doesn't cost the right, but the right win of the tournament as well because of something too freaky. It's on a knife edge, seventeen. Like if it gets a little windy, it's going to be spicy. But it could get could get away from them. So who knows? You asked about Rory winning, didn't you, Zach? I mean, I I, I don't know. Like it's not 
He hasn't won it, and I, it's not one for tons of hyperbole. But he is, I, you know, unless it's radically different in the US, I still sense Rory is the most popular golfer to go out and win something right now. It feels like his time. I th- think he has put a huge amount back into the game. He's a very good spokesman for the game. I wonder how much of him being a great spokesperson for the game has at times impacted on his own playing. And and I think that's a bit of a, you know, a shame. But I think it would just be, it would feel like such a fitting winner. Um, but like all things, you know, when when everything's packed away on Sunday night, it'll just feel like Monday. It won't, I don't think it'll change the game materially. I don't, uh, you know, I think he, he's just, it'll be another champion. I think that's the great thing about the Open itself is the the event is 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 bigger than the winners you know it's like it's a it's such a significant and historic event you know the 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 names that are on that trophy and Roy will just be another great name you know and i think that stands for whoever wins that so uh no it should be should be a great week well have an awesome awesome week watching the open it's got to be so cool to have it so close to your hometown um i don't know if you mentioned are you actually going out there in person at all yeah week? we'll be there we'll be there uh, all four days uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah so oh, wow. Uh, that's incredible. Yeah. We'll have an yeah, amazing see. experience out there watching the open. We'll be watching from on TV, waking up early to catch all the highlights. Um, and thanks again for hopping on our podcast. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Frank.